0: Almost Awaken podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Real. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality. No nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Well, here we are again. How are you?
1: Hi, Bill. How are you doing?
2: Doing great. The Almost Awakened podcast, um, which is a reminder that we are never really woke, right? We're always <laughs> constantly reevaluating it's our blind true. spots. I and... learned a
1: lot this week by studying for this podcast, and I'm I'm always learning. And there are many times along this journey where I have this thought of like, I'm just a newborn baby. Like I'm just you know where you like have learned something and you're so new in something that you feel like a baby again.
2: Yeah, Th- this book has been sort of magical for me over the years because it's short, it's succinct, and I really. A lot of people think of the book as woo, but I really resonate with what he's teaching. And I really think there's real truth uh, in, in the book. And I titled this episode, Britt, I titled it Revisiting the Four Agreements for the Very First Time, because this was my fourth, maybe fifth time through the book. Mm. And uh, this was your very first time. My reading very it. first. Yeah, we had done an episode, uh, my wife and I had done an episode in between the original co-host and you, you coming on board where the two of us talked about the book at length. And, uh, but you had never read it. And so when you had suggested, um, the possibility of going into this, I thought it was a great idea.
1: Well, I always had that pang of guilt when you gave your list of like things that have been inspiring to you over the years, you know, people who have been teachers for you and then you'll mention this book and it's like, Oh, I still haven't read it.
2: And you did it. How long did it take you to go through it?
1: um one one night but i mean like a long night um no i flipped through it you read it yeah Mm -hmm.
2: you read it i think uh my first one was reading through it and then the last three or four times was through audible usually if i take a flight like if i go to ohio for instance you know it's a four-hour flight and i'll read like three of his books, listen to three of his books on the flight because they're just really easy to zip through if you have them at like 1.5. I prefer, yeah,
1: I'll, I do more books through Audible just because, you know, I'm doing chores and I'm at the gym or whatever and you can get through a book, but I prefer, especially if I'm going to be talking about it, like I do prefer to like have the text in my hands and be able to, to flip around or highlight things if I have the chance. So, but yeah, it was lovely. I have, I do have two news things for you before we start some news anecdotes that i want your hot take on okay that this is just kind of being discussed in the world of you know religious commentary and so i wanted your hot takes on these two things uh in this past year these two news things that came up that are getting a lot of talk so the first one is pope francis in the catholic church um came out and said that he was reviewing the celibacy rule so what happened was the German Catholic, Catholic Church voted on a referendum, sent it to the Pope saying we need to review this and see if we need to be still doing this. And Pope Francis responded saying that he would review it and that it's not a contradiction to be married and to be a priest. This started in the 11th century. A lot of the reasons behind why it was started um, could have been spurred by um men being in the church if you weren't married and didn't have children you'd leave your money to the church and that seemed to help the church a lot and then there's also the discipline aspect and so pope francis said yes this is a discipline it's not an eternal doctrine and maybe it's time for this to go by the wayside so what do you think do you think in the next decade that catholic priests will be able to marry in in order to kind of change the narrative when it comes to all the weird sex stuff that goes on when you have this whole generation of celibacy
2: oh all right so i'm gonna do a david bednar and i'm gonna change the question okay
1: okay (laughs) so the the
2: question and and maybe i'll do what brad wilcox does right rather than ask what britney hartley just asked Mm
1: -hmm. what i
2: would ask is why in the hell then did thousands of kids need to get molested while you hold out on a doctrine or policy that actually you said could have been
1: changed from the beginning. Not just that, but when asked mm. um, towards the beginning of him becoming a Pope, he was seemed to be a fan of um, celibacy and really stood behind it. And then this you know, latest statement that came from him saying that, you know, I'll review it and it's not eternal. And um, he talks about how in the Eastern church, um, people can become married. And, um, anyway, there, there seems to be a lot more nuance in what he's talking about now versus, um, 10 years ago when he was asked about celibacy. So there seems to be something happening with that.
2: Uh, the older and more experienced we get, the more we realize we don't live in a black and white world of order.
1: Yeah. And I wonder if, you know, I wonder if there really are discussioning, discussions happening at the top level of, hey, is the celibacy requirement rather than just having it being a chosen discipline that you choose to go into, which some people do, you know, there's aesthetics that do all kinds of um, fasting or go without sex or do all kinds of things, but rather than have it be chosen, you know, maybe there are discussions happening about, hey, maybe because we're requiring it, it's making some really weird sex stuff that seems to be pretty prevalent that we probably need to take care of.
2: Yeah, it's almost as if in all of these religions that they're just normal humans who are reluctant to shift and move, who hold on to old dogmatic myths and and ideologies and uh, that there really isn't any... God voice behind it, dictating what's right yeah, or wrong.
1: That's exactly where my brain went on this. And this, that was exactly what I said. I, I brought this up on TikTok of, if you're paying attention, you can see when the revelation happens. And so if in a couple years, the Catholic church comes out and says, you know, we've decided to move in this direction and, you know, maybe believers will praise it as, as Pope Francis being re- really revolutionary. But, you know, you heard it here first that if you're watching, if you're paying attention, um, revelation is always bottom up instead of, you know, it only appears top down if that's how you're looking at it, It just kind of the surface level if you're not paying attention. But this revelation stuff is bottom up.
2: And in the moments it is top down, often those things get reversed either three and a half years later or 40 years later.
1: In this one, or yeah, it's like a thousand, this is a thousand years later of like, well, maybe we don't really need to do this.
2: <laughs> yeah, a lot of stuff happened while you thought it was needed, though, wasn't it? A lot and of a hurtful, lot of, harmful stuff.
1: A, a lot of hurtful, harmful sex mm. stuff when, yeah. when you force people to be celibate and that it's not chosen. Yeah. Um, and that it's forced. So anyway, very interesting. All right, my second mm. um, news article for you today This one I thought would interest you too. So this was at the very uh, end of last year. So December 26, 2022, Japan kind of did some groundbreaking laws on child abuse that was attached to religious doctrine. And I want to see if you think that if this could happen in America, and I think we're going to see other um, countries in in the industrialized nations do this. And I'm going to guess that America, it's going to take a while, but essentially what was going on is social workers are going into these awful situations and there's child abuse or there's trauma, but because you can hide behind religion, Oh, this is my religion. Then it was creating issues. And so rather than say, well, you have religious freedom, Japan kind of said, Hey, if there is, If there is abuse and trauma, if these things are not healthy, um, you can't hide behind religion. So, for example, if you say phrases like you will go to hell to children, child abuse. If you force children to participate in religious activities through religious threats, child abuse. If you don't let them study, if you don't let them go to a school, or you force them to go to only a specific school and they can't, get an education on the basis of religion, child abuse. If you for prevent them from marrying or having friends outside of the religion, child abuse. Um, and then the last one was, oh, this one is going to be very interesting to you. If you're not giving them adequate food and Um, there's a lack of living expenses due to religious donations, meaning if you are making large donations to a religious institution to the point that your children are not getting enough food, that is considered child abuse. Hmm. Thoughts there?
2: Well, first, this runs counter to divine revelation that if countries in poverty will pay their tithing, that's how they'll get out of poverty first. That's my first thing I noticed. Hmm. Second is to simply say that, we ought to take measures that other countries implement that seem to create a higher level of healthiness, and uh, we, ought to, um, we ought to adapt those in our own country. I just put a post on Facebook that said that, you know, we often say, and I've got a bit of a voice issue, but I actually feel good. Um, I put a post out on Facebook yesterday that America often touts itself as the greatest country on earth and that when we consider the things that uh, go into whether someone is content, happy, well-being is good, they're productive. They've actually done studies on countries and America usually ends up about 14th to 17th. The leaders are always this handful of European countries that are deeply interconnected. Switzerland, Netherlands, Finland, who's always number one for last six years, Denmark, uh, those kinds of places, right? And they're all the same people, right, that have, put themselves in different geographic locations near each other. And and yes, they're, they're different um, nationalities. But when you follow the history of each of those segments of people, it goes back to the same group, there's something about their values that lead to a happier, healthier human being. And rather than insist that we're the best country on Earth, us and every other country outside those top 10 ought to look at those top 10 and see what it is about those people and what they value. And we ought to incorporate it into our own country, and everyone else should too, right? And there are things and and I talked to you yesterday, there are things that make those top six, seven, eight of uh, countries unique. And there are things that make the bottom six, seven, eight countries unique. And when you understand what things go into a very unhealthy society and a very healthy society, Why wouldn't we all wrap our arms around that? And obviously, the only answer in almost every instance, for those who don't, is because of some sort of religious arrogance, that you are above the need to listen to other people and what they're doing well. And you see that throughout religion, it's pervasive. Um, But and you look at those bottom seven or eight countries, and they are all dictatorships, or religious extremism. So essentially what Japan's doing I would absolutely say like that should be studied sought out and adapted if if it if the principles there are really uh, creating a healthier society.
1: It'd be really interesting like the pushback if if a law like that was passed and I'm not saying all religious people are child abusers but they're you know when I look at the religion that we came from, um, there was definitely encouragement to go to, like, you know, my dad said, I'll pay if you go to a BYU and I won't pay if you go to somewhere else. And there was an encouragement to marry inside the inside the lines and have friends inside the lines. There was certainly pressure to go to religious things. And there was definitely threats of losing your family and that you're going to lose everything that is, tr- you know, religious trauma. And then as far as tithing, you know, there's, I have never heard a narrative in church that says, pay your tithing. But you know, if you have to put clothes on your children, and your car breaks down, and you literally can't afford to give them food, God wants you to give your children the food. You know what I mean? Like, it's that's, that's not been the narrative. And so if the church can't, if the churches can't do that, provide those like safety guidelines of like hey let's not push this too far then it's society's job and the you know essentially the government's job to make those laws to have that check on churches and on religion if they can't handle that themselves
2: yeah no no i'm totally on board and there's also questions about when you're paying tithing and it's mandatory and again mormon the mormon church plays this game where it says it's not mandatory but to enjoy all of the privilege of salvation on the other side, a Mormon has to pay tithing. So when you, when you have that uh, admonition to pay tithing and now you can't quite afford to feed your kids, number one, you're getting a tax exemption with your taxes and you're likely if you're in in a borderline poverty situation to begin with, now you're likely applying to the schools for free lunches and all of that. So you're, you're essentially kind of hurting the system on multiple levels at the expense of creating, or at the expense of adhering to a religious instruction whereby the reward you wouldn't know you got until you die and find out if it's real or not.
1: Mm.
2: It's such a strange thing.
1: Mm, yeah. All right. So, yeah, you ready to dig in here?
2: Yeah. So, the four agreements, um, you're going to give us a little bit of history on this first, this book and its author. And then we'll jump into kind of the first section where he talks
1: about life as a dream. Yeah, so anyone who's been listening to to the podcast will know that um, I always like to like back up the story because I want to understand just kind of the historical context of whatever we're talking about. And this was a super interesting story. So the author, Don Miguel Ruiz, so his um, great-grandfather was a shaman, and then his, you know, lived in kind of like the Tijuana area, and then his grandmother migrated into the U.S. and built a temple and continued to teach these um, Toltec kind of teachings, these mystical old, uh, you could either call it Toltec or old Mexican, or really just, you know, these these kind of ancient wisdom kind of teachings and she taught for 40 years built a temple and taught for 40 years she has she's in the san diego women's hall of fame because she was really a what we would call now a wisdom teacher and Mm. she had set up a temple and was very successful and um put um her kids through college and had a lot of community support and was kind of considered the community wisdom shaman and then um now his father so that you know grandma's son born and raised in america wasn't sure if he really wanted to do this goes um and becomes a doctor and starts practicing medicine and then after a while kind of has this his own kind of awakening moment of like i'm kind of prescribing pills I'm not really helping anyone, but I see my grandma over here and she's really transforming people, body, mind, soul, spirit, you know, the whole package. I want to be able to do more for people than what I'm able to do in the medical field. And he left his practice and started to be taught under his grandmother. And so this is like the historical tradition that this author was born in. So when he was 14 years old, he was apprenticed to his father to begin learning these um, wisdom traditions. Um, Some of that is healing people spiritually, but also getting the body involved physically in in this kind of healing um, practices. And then after 10 years of apprenticeship, His father kind of sent him out into the world and said, you need to kind of find your way into the world now and told him to become the master of death by becoming alive. And basically like, you know, it's time for you to go out and experience kind of your own path here instead of just, you know, you've been my apprentice for a decade. And so he goes out and he's seeing, you know, the needs of American society and where this wisdom could really help. And so he kind of distills all of this um, wisdom that he'd been a part of and studied and is part of his father and grandmother and great-grandfather's Um, tradition and kind of distilled it all into this book, the four agreements for the general public. And this was kind of his path and his journey and his way of making these teachings kind of come to life for him. And it's his meaning and purpose. And I just thought that was a really cool story of just someone um, really being part of an ancient wisdom tradition that really goes back for generations, for however you know, for a very long time. And so he is considered a Nagwal, which is a Toltec master of transformation, of really like life transformation. Maybe we would call that life coach, but it's got a lot more like oomph to it than life coach, because this is, you know, just really ancient wisdom that he studied You know in an apprenticeship kind of situation for years and years and as part of his family tradition and then kind of just you know distilled it all into this book that have was just a really really beautiful book and really simple concepts to pick up and put into your life yeah so that's my little yeah that was my little story um about how this book kind of came into being and then yeah why don't you jump us in there bill
2: so in the first section he's trying to kind of get the territory ready for us to understand the four agreements themselves. And so before he goes into those four agreements he starts off by setting up the idea that life is a dream that you're dreaming. And and he's I, so much of this goes ties into eastern wisdom too. I very much was reminded of things that we had covered in uh, Jack Kornfield's uh, Buddhism for Beginners for instance. This idea that Life is a dream. Another way to say it is that you're an actor on a stage in a play and you control the dream. And the dream gets to be you getting up every day and pursuing the most authentic life you want, or the dream is you compromising to what other people expect you to be. And so he talks about uh that we that we from the moment we're born as babies, we're competing for attention and acceptance and that along the way we made an agreement to believe and to behave in ways that got us the attention and acceptance that we were seeking. And so he calls this the domestication of humans. And he says, just like cattle, just like, uh, you know, just like pet dogs, just like any animal that's been domesticated on some level, that we humans have done the same thing. And, and I'm reminded of this in a lot of ways, but one of them, for instance, is just to go to psychedelic drugs, for instance. So somebody could, 2,000 years ago, walk out into a field, pick a mushroom that grew out of the ground, throw it in their mouth, and decide to do whatever they wanted with it. Today, we created these societal structures that all have rules and laws, and this inside these geographic lines, this entity, which is man-made, fictional myth determines that you, the humans who created this myth, aren't allowed to now use anything that grows out of the ground. You can't fish without a license. You can't drive on the roads without a license. The entities have distanced us from what it is to be human. Mm. And this domestication of humans, uh, we're told how to live. We're told what behaviors are acceptable. We are taught to judge everyone around us and to judge ourselves. We learned punishment and reward. We changed our behaviors and our outward identity. Hence, we are acting. We are wearing a mask. This is all a facade. And we did it first for mom and dad, and then our neighborhood, and then our religion, and then our society at large, our school system. Everywhere we went, everyone around us was telling us what kind of human we were allowed to be. They were telling us what the expectations of our humanity was, what we could show up as, and what we could show what we could not show up as. And um, we learned those punishments. We learned those rewards. Um, our belief system, he says, is the book of laws that rules our mind. We become auto domesticated. When we don't live up to our book of laws, the judge inside us judges us and everyone outside of us. It imparts shame to ourselves and to everyone outside of us. And the victim in us feels shame, fear, and feels broken. And I've often been saying that the secret to being happy and content is really finding a way to have enough safe space that you can be enough of your authentic self that you don't feel the burden of expectations of others on you as a, as a way to compromise who you are. Um, I always say that it's the, the only rule we really need to live by. And I get there is moments where both sides lose and sometimes maybe both sides win, but the only rule that's really necessary for human beings to get along is don't be a jerk to each other. We, in my, in our friend group, I'll swear, we say, don't be a dick.
1: That's our, <laughs> that's
2: our rule. Mm-hmm. And every rule should be a facet of that rule. And really you can fit almost all rules into that. But what happens is that you have discomfort Brit over me being in your space and being my authentic self in ways that make you not feel comfortable. Um, for instance, when folks struggle with somebody simply dressing in clothing of a gender that they don't present physically, we make rules about it, not because they're really hurting anybody, but because we're feeling discomfort inside ourselves. Um, another thing, and again, I know I'm rambling. There's another one, which is that religions invent this thing called hell. And hell seems to be a way for me in my discomfort about your behaviors to be able to hold over your head a threat that you're going to go somewhere really bad if you don't behave. And it gives me the internal bullshit reason that I'm trying to save your soul. Like, hey, Brit, you shouldn't be transgender because you'll go to hell and I'm here to give you the warning voice because I want to save you. When in reality, it's my discomfort and my religion's discomfort or my society's discomfort with a group of humans showing up in a way that makes us uncomfortable that we have these rules. And so constantly these expectations are placed on everyone out there. And all your life, you have been compromising yourself in order to fit in to that group, your family, your school, your church, your society. And what um, what Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. is trying to do here is he's trying to help you understand that you don't have to play by those agreements anymore. That you can essentially go by the one rule, don't be a dick. And that's what the four agreements <sighs> will help us do. And you can then start to live your authentic life no longer concerned about what anyone outside of you thinks of you, so long as you have integrity with who you are inside.
1: Mm. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I wrote a few notes down as you are going, so I'm going to go back to something that you said earlier on, which is um, there's obviously going to be a lot of parallels with this and other kind of wisdom teachers or, you know, the, eightfold path and, and things like that. And any kind of mystic tradition, something that shows up a lot is that is this sense of like, wake up from the dream. And so Christian mystics, for example, will say that the first commandment from God, if you go back to Genesis is God telling Adam awake and arise, which they interpret to be, you know, from a mystic, you know, perspective, they interpret to be God, um, telling humankind that the first thing that you need to do before I tell you anything else is wake up, wake up. And you see this in so many religious texts, even something like, you know, Dante and Infernal, the the very beginning of that is not walking into hell. It's that I was walking down a road and I found myself lost. and it's just this waking up to where you are and waking up to this dream and this actor that you've been and this kind of matrix that you're in. and that before you can kind of start your spiritual journey, there first needs to be some kind of awakening. And of course, the title of this podcast is We're Always Doing That. We're always, um, because it just doesn't happen once in your life. We continue to wake up to um, all of the subconscious things that are affecting our behavior and all of the shadow stuff. And, you know, we're continuing to wake up to that. But it really speaks to a, this idea across traditions. That the first thing that you need to do is just kind of wake up to life being a dream. And then when he was going, when you were talking about competing for attention and acceptance, it reminded me of the two podcasts that we've done. One on um, attachment styles where we really went into how we, you know, receive love, especially in those beginning years, really Mm -hmm. helped really drive our behavior uh, because we're competing for that love and attention and it's drilled into our subconscious. And then also whenever we bring up the Enneagram, I can go back to periods of time where um, those moments where I feel like I became know that five side of me i'm a four with a five wing or a five with a four wing or something like that and i remember moments in middle school when i had just moved into a you know a new town and we were poor so my clothes weren't very cool and i wasn't really um a social kid but i was a really good reader and i could give these book reports and i could do a really good job and get praise from the teacher and i remember just very young feeling like, oh, if I do this, I have a place in this classroom. I get love and attention from my teacher. And it's like the moment that I became, like that wing showed up for me because I did something that got me attention and praise and love and worthiness, right? So you can even go back and figure out, you know, with the Enneagram, when you do deep work with the Enneagram, you can almost figure out how you became that based on your family dynamics and your experiences because you were competing for attention and acceptance. And all of us, um, at the beginning of our lives, were are really wired for what do I need to get to do? What do I need to say? How do I need to act? What personality do I need to have? What do I need to do to get love and attention and, and acceptance? And it's it. And we just kind of buy into that. And then as we get older, obviously this becomes our trap. This becomes how we're, how we're having relationships in the world and how we are behaving. And so we have to kind of unleash this kind of matrix wiring that we bought into just because we're wired to try to find ways to find acceptance and love. And so the other thing that he said, and I was listening to a podcast with him this morning and he said, the best way towards releasing domestication is forgiving ourselves for accepting conditional love. And I loved that. And I actually put, it's one of those moments where like, okay, I got to think about what he just said. I need to pause it. And so I'm at the gym and I'm like kind of working out, but I'm always podcasting and making notes in my phone. So I don't know if it's actually a real workout, but I pushed pause and had to sit with this for a second, that the best way for me to release kind of all of the, you know, religious trauma and things that I've done and, ways that I've sold myself short and how many years where I really wasn't living really an authentic life and trying to repress parts of my voice or myself. And he said, the best way to release that is forgiving yourself for doing that because you were doing your best to accept conditional love, which is what we're all trained to do. And you didn't have tools to see any way around that. And you have to forgive yourself for even doing that, which I thought was really interesting.
2: Conditional love ties directly into fitting in, right? It's conditional. Yes. You have to be something in order to get it. Mm-hmm. Unconditional love is belonging. You belong here simply the way you are. Mm-hmm. And to differentiate these those two, he talks about that as we have made agreements to compromise ourselves in order to be what the world and those around us need us to be, what ends up happening is... Um, we end up having as our motive operandi ends up being fear and shame. And so often because we're not present because we're in our minds and our ego is worried uh, out of fear that something's going to go wrong, that we're not going to do it right, that, you know, we're going to, danger is going to come or this good time I'm having is going to leave that out of fear, we make all these choices and we're not present for these choices. We're, we're really kind of in our heads thinking too much. What ends up happening is we um, make lots of decisions and we behave in lots of ways that come out of that fear uh, because we want to fit in. And um, I'm trying to think offhand what else to add here. I want to go into the spot where he says the whole dream is based on false laws. I think, I I, I, I think the red ink on the outline is you. And so I'm assuming I wrote the, the upper part, but Yeah, Yeah, let me
1: let me go. Let me do one more thing that he said that really struck me. He's something that he also warned is that the four agreements themselves can become the four conditions, which is anything that you use to help you wake up whatever wisdom path. And you and I have talked about this before can become um, can ossify in such a way. That it becomes the way that you create the matrix again, right? So, Christianity, Christian mysticism can be a way to awake and arise, and then it becomes the trap. Or, um, you know, Buddhism, when I went over to Thailand to study Buddhism, and, you know, so excited, this whole country that practices Buddhism. And then I go over there and I see that it's, you know, in many ways in culture, it, it had become a trap, you know, people wearing various totems for good luck and lots of prosperity, gospel, lots of superstition, right? And I was like, oh, you know, and, and so he admitted that at the very beginning that, hey, these are the four agreements, they can teach you a lot, but even if you, but because of, you know, human nature, Even with these four agreements, you can make these and twist these into the four conditions and use these to just domesticate people. And then we're back to being trapped. And so almost anything can be used to help you awaken and almost anything can be used to become the thing that traps you. Um, Even, you know, the thing that he's trying to use to help people wake up to their authentic lives and so i love that honesty from the very beginning of him saying like instead of this being the four eternal rules that everybody needs to you know use he's saying hey even this could become the thing by which we domesticate each other and you know, force each other into these relationships of conditional love, which I, I thought was really interesting that he just said at mm. the forefront and made me more trusting of where we, he was going because it wasn't one of those life coaches that like, here's your 10 steps to your authentic self. It was the honesty of saying, here are the four agreements, but you can also make these into the four conditions And lose all of the wisdom and lose all of the beauty of it. And so beware of that trap. And that just made me trust him more as I was reading through this.
2: Mm, Love that. Uh, He mentions that the whole dream is based on false laws. And um, you added a couple to these. But some of these, fear controls the outside dream. Again, everything is fear-based. Your need to fit in to receive conditional love or conditional acceptance (laughs) is how you have plotted out the entire life of how you're going to live. And hence, while you and I can sense the unhealthiness that exists in religion, for instance, it needs to be stated emphatically here at the beginning of this conversation that every one of us was active in making these agreements. Um, It doesn't take away the fact that people manipulated you. It doesn't take away from the fact that you were deceived by people. It doesn't take away from the fact that people lied to you or gave you false representations of things. But on some level, you need to recognize that you were an active participant in making these agreements. Because it's important in that if you feel like something was taken away from you, it's important to see that you actually have the power to take it back. And hence, by being able to take it back, no one took it from you and is clinging to it and you can't get it. You handed it over. You have the ability to take it back. So the whole dream is based on false laws. False laws. Fear controls the outside dream. Um, We are already in hell because you're always struggling every day to fit in. You're constantly worried about the world around you and how you fit into it. And hence, you're already in hell suffering and living in a state of fear. Um, He says that we search for justice and we search for beauty but we're blinded by all the false beliefs in our mind. And then I think you've got a couple here at the bottom added in.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking it it brings in our conversations that we've had about Renee Brown of what in what ways did I participate in fitting in? Versus belonging, right, and that's like the basis of what Brene Brown is trying to teach us. Is that she's learned, you know, she's learned through a different path, right, through the, the study of shame and the study of guilt and all the study of belonging. Um, she's learned from from that path that this is what we do—that we sacrifice um, belonging in order to fit in, and mm-hmm. some of that may just be our deep evolutionary tribalism that for a long time, if you didn't fit into that tribe, if you didn't find a way to really groove in that tribe, you were outside of the tribe and you were dead. And so it feels really strong. And, you know, for years I had sacrificed and I had contorted and moved in ways and participated in my own trap in order to fit in somewhere, right? In order to not just be floating out into the abyss. And it wasn't until... I had noticed how contorted I was and kind of woke up to that and took that step into the outside that I was able to build relationships where it really was about belonging, where I could show up exactly as I was. Um, but it, you know, it wasn't until I I woke up to the ways that I was compromising myself in order to fit in. Um, and And that was really hard. I mean, that was my marriage. That was my community. That was my family. And that was also my, you know, doctorate program in theology. I mean, it really was my entire world that um, I was really trying to do what I could and I participated in it to fit in because you just want that love and attention and that acceptance so bad that you're willing to do that and you're willing to participate in that through your own actions, right? You know, nobody, nobody, like you said, some of it may have been manipulative, but no one put a gun to my head and said, you have to do this.
2: Right. One of the other ones was blinded. We're blinded by all the agreements that we have made. So all these agreements have us constantly in our head trying to figure out how to be a version of us that the world's going to be okay with. When, uh, and you made the note here that there's an opportunity to be free and wild and intentional and to craft your life like that is freedom to mm-hmm. wake up in the morning and to say, like, this isn't going to be that hard. I'm just going to go through the day being me.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: all of a sudden, all the pressure of everything around you goes by the wayside. But um, let me see where it's at here. He says, if you want to find peace and joy, you have to find the personal strength to break these old agreements and make new ones. You have to change the dream of your life. Um, and and I think this is, again, this is coming from the West, but this is very much the wisdom that you find in the Eastern traditions, that you just have to be okay with yourself and the world as it is. Uh, and that's when you can begin to end suffering within yourself. Uh, any thoughts there?
1: Yeah, and it goes back to I think the the translation of the word nagual, I'm butchering that. Let me go back. Nagual, yeah, is um, you know, when you translate this Toltec word, which is how we self-identify as it's similar to like a shaman, but the word is nagual, but when you translate that it's it's the artist of life. And That's what he's teaching you to do through these principles is that you don't have to, you don't have to do this. You don't have to play this game. Um, We can step outside. It may feel like you're going to die because you have all these subconscious agreements that you didn't even know that you were agreeing to, Um, but that you can become the artist of your own life. And that is truly the best part of second half of life is the freedom to do that. And finding people who actually love you in that, Nake, you know,
2: in that nakedness and in that vulnerability. Yeah. There's also, this will be a little off track, but there's also another layer to how we present ourselves to the world. And I think this one is actually a, a sort of good a kind of acting. And what I mean by that is I'm a, I'm a human being with frailties. I, I think thoughts that aren't the purest or healthiest I uh, my brain tells me, along with all the stories it tells me of being good and showing up in the world in healthy ways, there's also the temptation of the part of our brain that also tells us to do horrific things. And those things are always both going on. And there are moments where we can be, say, in a public space and someone or something, someone comes into the room or something is happening and your brain will tell you to that 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 to laugh at something you shouldn't laugh at or to do something you shouldn't do or to think something you shouldn't think. And because the outside world only sees the actor on the stage, Mm -hmm. the outside world doesn't see the thoughts in your head. When you are present and you are aware of that, what the ego is doing, you have the opportunity in spite of what parts of your brain might be saying, it might be the strongest parts of your brain you actually, when you separate ego from who you are, you actually have the strength within you because of your present, being present and aware to still choose to outwardly show up as the healthy human being. Does that make sense? Mm,
1: yeah, totally makes sense. And so- Yeah, that's one the, of those, like, I gotta sit back with a cigar. Like, you just drop some wisdom. Like, phew, I gotta sit with that.
2: <laughs> you can, in any moment, be the outward actor on the stage doing healthy behavior and living in spite of what the thoughts inside your head are saying. And I just think that's an important thing for people to know because when you're stuck in ego or when you're stuck in past and future, it is near impossible to reroute that thinking and not just do what the brain tells you to do. But when you're present, you actually have the capacity to do something other.
1: Yeah, that's that little bit of freedom that we've talked about on multiple episodes. Where, um, if you haven't experienced that little space where you're not your thoughts or you're not your ego, you're not going to have the space to be able to walk into that room and say, instead of, "Oh, I'm feeling social anxiety, so I'm going to act this way." You can actually say, "Oh, I'm I'm feeling this. It's totally normal. I'm not going to die. I'm actually going to say the thing that I'm really feeling because." You know, I'm just—I'm not going to show up and be an actor with with a mask on because that's exhausting in itself. I'm mm-hmm. going to show up as me, and it reminds me of this story that he said that I skipped earlier, but this would be a perfect place to bring it in. And there's this famous um, Cherokee story, and it's one that I used to really love when I was kind of more in a binary place. And it's it's the story of the two wolves fighting, and it's this Cherokee story of a grandfather telling his grandson that we have two wolves and. And one is, um, you know, love and acceptance and beauty and kindness and compassion. And the other one is anger and envy and hate and fear. And they're fighting each other all the time. And so the grandson asks, you know, which... Which wolf wins? And the grandfather says, the wolf that you feed. And he said, I was trapped in this for a long time. And I got from that message, oh, just feed your good wolf. And he said that real self-love where you break away from that conditional love is recognizing that you are the two wolves and the fight ends inside of me. And it was like this like earth shattering moment for him of instead of just trying to feed this, the, the good wolf and show everybody the good wolf. I'm actually both wolves and they don't have to fight anymore. Like, you know, I don't have to pretend that one exists and the other doesn't by just feeding one over the other. I am both. And then that gave him kind of the power to have unconditional love for himself and then to be able to extend that out into others. And I thought that was a really beautiful way of, of kind of taking a story that's very popular and kind of expanding it into um kind of a bigger container where we can hold both of those wolves.
2: Mm, Love it. Um, All right. So let's jump into the first agreement. The very first agreement is to be impeccable with your word. And he tells the story of a girl singing. It's a young girl. She's just a kid and she's singing and her mother comes home from a hard day at work. She's got a headache and this, this daughter is singing and the mother out of her own, Uh, her own triggers, her own trauma, her own, whatever it is, her not feeling well. She, in a uh, moment of reaction, tells her daughter, quote, you have an ugly voice, shut up, unquote. And man, that sounds mean as hell, but I can certainly remember moments as a parent, not that I said something maybe that directly harsh, but there were moments as a parent where I said something mean or hurtful in order to get a different result from my children. And um, it to note kind of the impact that that has. So this little girl ends up believing she makes an agreement with her mom in the universe that her voice is not pretty. So she goes through the rest of her life, not singing songs. And even when she's asked to speak, she has apprehension about speaking in these situ- in any situation because she believes her voice is ugly she believes her voice is not worthy of being heard and it does we all have these things happen these moments in our life especially in childhood where we're just showing up innocently enough and our parents our neighborhood our school the world around us gives us messages to tell us that this part of our humanity is not enough. It's not good enough. It's bad. It's broken. It's less than, and to realize the impact it has, especially on children throughout the rest of their life. And to notice that, um, that the things that, uh, the things that gave us fear or shame or trauma as children Anytime we show up throughout the rest of our life in any situation that our brain sees as similar, our brain will then trigger us to feel in the present moment something connected to those moments from long ago. And those, when those triggers happen, we often in our shadow are using unhealthy mechanisms to manipulate the world around us so that we can put things back in order. And so there's so much layers and layers of baggage attached to the messages that forced us to compromise, especially again in childhood.
1: Yeah. Um, and like genetically too, right? So like there's the whole story of you and your own subconscious, but then the more studies that we're doing, and a lot of these are are on rats, but we're seeing this, you know, seeing things in humans show up when we talk about generational trauma is like you... They gave they gave rats, you know, a smell of um, some flower, and you know gave them a shock, and then when the the kids were born of that mouse when they would smell that, they would have an anxiety reaction, they would have a reaction to that smell, never having experienced what it is about that, that was, you know, terrifying. And so, you know, that's just, that's just a smell and a bad experience. But we're talking about generational trauma, you know, these things can, in your body is an entire story, an ancient story. And so the people who are really like body spirituality people are people who are really in tune with Um, all of these messaging that our bodies are holding and the body keeps score and all of that. But then also it goes back in history and you're this kind of ancient creation with this ancient story and it's all inside your body and it's fascinating.
2: Yeah. He says what, what breaks us from being, uh, what prevents us from being impeccable with our word is gossip and gossip is so So primary to being a human being again, we, we don't even grasp it, but we humans have used gossip as a tool to collaborate and adhere our society together so that we could, when the first tribes were learning language and begin to say things about each other that were not exactly healthy, those unhealthy things being said also conveyed skill sets, trustworthiness, um, whatever behaviors would deem that person was going to benefit the tribe or hurt the tribe. And so from, from hundreds of thousands of years ago, we humans would have conveyed that information in a tool called gossip. And that tool would have led to that tribe being more successful at surviving because they could now be in groups of 25 to 150 where the tribe that wasn't gossiping would have to be 25 or less.
1: Yeah. And it is powerful. I mean, I was I was watching something that showed just how much violence there was in this early in these early tribes that before we um, started to kind of grow grain and have a surplus and be able to take care of each other. If you were a nomadic tribe and grandma's not keeping up anymore, you would essentially start talking about it and start kind of whispering. And start kind of, you know, oh, I don't know about grandma over here. And then all of a sudden, grandma's got a club to the back of her head. And that was how the tribe survived. Because yeah. grandma's not going to, we, we can't stop for grandma. And so there is this, so when you get that feeling of like, people are talking about me. Or there's gossip about me. it I mean, we do have this primal fear of like, they don't like me. And it goes back to like, if they don't like me, I'm going to die out here, even though it's not as dire as our body is reacting to it. Like our body is reacting to it as if we're going to die. And we're totally safe in our house, just like watching TV, wondering if I'm a part of the group chat or not, you know, and it's like this total mismatch to reality.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but we do. We feel that on an instinctual level, don't we?
1: Yeah. All right. My, My notes on this one. Um, for being impeccable to your word, this one to me was, I think, my favorite one because this to me was my ticket out of an inauthentic life, right? So, in in my marriage, it wasn't totally showing up of myself, family, work. I mean, really, towards the end there, I was doing a lot of contorting, and the way out of that was, um, and I and I kind of found this from another from another source but to start telling the truth. And so showing up in my marriage and saying, I I've, not only do I not believe this anymore, but I I'm having a hard time with this and, you know, saying mm-hmm. the words that are going to c- cause problems in the marriage, at least in the short term. Right. Because, mm-hmm. but, but they were the words that needed to be said and it, felt awful. I felt sick, you know, it just felt awful. And then telling my advisor who I just adore and love that I don't think I can write this dissertation because I don't believe in God anymore. And I, I don't know how I could write this hundred pages on this theological whatever. And then, you know, same thing, community, family, and, and not that I'm like proclaiming to the whole world, but but those little places where I knew I wasn't telling the whole truth. And starting to tell the truth. And it truly became my ticket out to my authentic life. And then when I meet someone, I went to Thomas McConkie's meditation group here in Boise and again started to lead with honesty. Hey, I don't really have great friends in my life right now. And I really would like some better friends. And you are just really lovely. And I would love to spend some more time with you. And from that, one sentence of me being honest, a whole post-Mormon group formed in Boise, right? Just from me saying that one sentence, they showing up and really being honest and saying, I don't, I, I've kind of, a lot of my relationships are really rocky right now and I really don't have great friendships and, and I'd really love to spend more time with you because I really mm. admire you, someone else who was in the group also. And from just the relationship of the two of us, built a whole tribe that, you know, I really feel like I could show up as my best and worst self and be totally loved and held. But it wasn't until I started to treat my words as if they were powerful and really start telling the truth, hard truths. um, That was my ticket from where I was to where i am now where i can at least say it's a, in a it's a more authentic life and it's deeper relationships and it's more honest relationships it was truth words Um, and hard conversations that were the path from A to B there for me. And so this one was really, really powerful for me. And you see this in every wisdom tradition. For Buddhism, when we did that, it was right speech. Um, For Christianity, they have this whole tradition of in the beginning was the Word, and, you know, the Word was with God, and the Word has this creative power. And, um, you know, there's scriptures about truth, and there's scriptures about, you know, the power of your tongue and the power of your words. And so you see this across wisdom traditions of words, words are really powerful and can be your path to an authentic life.
2: I I would just note that high demand fundamentalist religions which I'm always gonna point out, notice that they encourage you to be less than impeccable with your word. That there's a lot of encouraging you to put on the mask, to pretend to be happier than you are, to only speak the good things, to not criticize leaders, even if the criticism is true, right? Like you're not allowed to extend your full voice into this space. You on some level have to be sort of silent. Um, Other things besides gossip, and again, you're hitting on it with telling the truth. The opposite of that, of course, is lying. So if you don't keep your word, then you're not trustworthy. If you use your word to hurt people unnecessarily, gossip, for instance, you are you lose your your uh, the trustworthiness of your word. Um, breaking your agreements. If you make an agreement with somebody, you keep your agreement. So be impeccable with your word. It basically means that whatever you say that you can be trusted to mean and to be thinking what you say. And, and so you have to be aligned. It, what it does is it aligns your inner world with your outer world because you're communicating to the outer world what's going on inside, and these two need to be in alignment.
1: Yeah, my last thing on, on this one before we move, move on is that this is going to be hardest in your own tribe. So it's hardest, for example, if I'm with a group of atheists And really, we're just making fun of religion and someone says something and that's so stupid. But in my mind, I know I think, oh, I actually know that there's some benefit to that. It's hardest to say things that you think, you know, are true, especially when you're in that gossiping kind of mode. in your in your own tribe. And so it's going to be hardest to do in those high demand religions. And even in, you know, outside of religion, when you have kind of a group narrative, um, speaking truth in those places are very difficult. And I can even feel that pressure from atheists, um, where I want to talk about some value of religion, some value of fasting or some value of rituals or whatever it is. It's really hard to do with a group of, of atheists who just, you know, that's really not a part of the narrative. And I think, but I think the thing that's really underestimated is how much freedom there is in being impeccable with your word. And sometimes people will talk about, Oh, without God, you know, you can do whatever you want. And, um, so why wouldn't you just, you know, lie all the time when it suits you, but when you really look at it, um, one of the ways that I experience freedom in my life is by not having to do white lies, not having to keep track of lies, not having to keep track of what I said about this person and with who, and um, just, just all of that, right? There's a lot of mental work in keeping track of all of that. Or if you were to say something, you know, how do I say it in a way that, you know, as an apologist, I think you do this, you know, I believe this, but these people think this, so I'm going to say it in this kind of way. Um, anyway, all, all of that is, is just a lot of dancing and a lot of mental work and truly being impeccable with your word is so much freedom, freedom in my relationships, freedom, um, just in like, not having to compartmentalize yourself. Because again, when you lie, the reason we have lie detectors is because it shows up in your body. Your your subconscious has to compartmentalize all of that. And so there's so much freedom in not having to do that and really showing up in your life whole and not compartmentalized and not doing all these little white lies. Um, and something that I tell clients sometimes is look how far you've come as a compartmentalized person, imagine what you could do completely whole. Imagine what you could do as a whole person rather than one that's kind of cut up because our subconscious has to do that. I mean, there's a biological response when we tell these little lies and make these little moves in order to fit in. So imagine showing up whole Anyway, that's all. Yeah, I yeah,
2: did. no, I love it. Um, it makes me think of two things. One is that I would dare listeners who are listening to this episode. I dare you to wake up tomorrow, like set the goal, write it on your bathroom mirror. It's something my wife and I do a lot is write notes on our bathroom mirror to keep things on our mind. Make make it an experiment to try to go one day being impeccable with your word, mm. and and then I would also note that as you're pointing out, it's going to be hardest with the people that you are in most connection with. I would simply note to the audience, almost entirely, your marriages involve you wearing masks. Your, Your relationship with your kids or your parents, and specifically with your partner or spouse, they require you to compromise parts of yourself so that the other person can be feel safe about the world around them. And if you're going to sit and be impeccable with your word, if you're like, all right, that's it. I'm going to read the four agreements. I'm going to be impeccable with my word. There is going to be a stage of transition from having a marriage. And I I can tell you this, my wife and I both acknowledge doing this, like having a marriage where you're both fitting in and pretending to be what the other person needs you to be to all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, yeah, I read the four agreements yesterday. Now I'm going to be completely impeccable with my word. There's going to be, there's going to be some tension and stress and some heavy bumping into as you both figure out what it means to now have a relationship that is built on healthy honesty. That doesn't mean that, you know, somebody has a uh, clothes on that look horrible and you're like man that's the ugliest outfit I've ever seen like you don't need to be honest to a t it's a healthy level of honesty where you're not
1: bully. you don't need to bully with your honesty
2: no and nor do you need to lie in order to protect yourself and cover your ass right that you're honest about the way the world is outside and the way the world is inside of you
1: I've also noticed that maybe your kids are a little bit older so you don't have this temptation but I also notice when I am kind of aware of, I really want to be impeccable with my word is the white lies that I tell my kids. And a lot of them just, you know, really, really harmless. It's closed right now. You know, it's, it's, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, McDonald's is closed, you know, and why am I doing that? Because if I tell you the truth, then you're gonna do. Then you're gonna do the screaming thing, and then that's gonna make me feel uncomfortable, and I don't want to feel that thing. So I'm gonna tell you this lie, and you know, McDonald's is just closed, <laughs> and you know. But there. But if you really pay attention, I mean, if you do this without, uh, I mean, if you. It, it was a surprise to me almost that when I was paying attention to myself that I just did this hundreds of times with hundreds of little things to avoid really what was my own discomfort, because mm-hmm. I'm going to be dis- I'm going to be uncomfortable with how you're going to react to the truth. <laughs> and so by and so, you know, protecting my own um, comfort in a way. And I was kind of doing all these lies and I really wanted to develop this thing with my kids. And it's something that my dad, um, who is a man who's impeccable with his word, and he's known for being impeccable. And I can't tell you how wonderful it is to be in a relationship with a parent where if I say the word, do you promise? I know I would bet my life on it. That when I say, do you promise? He's not lying to me. He's telling me the full truth. And I wanted that for my kids too. And so I try to be more aware of those little white lies and not do them so that I have really a relationship of trust with my kids where they know that I'm not skirting things in order to avoid conversations or feelings or blow ups because those little white lies about McDonald's become bigger lies later. Right. And so I'm trying to avoid that because I want to have, I want them to have that relationship with me that I have with my dad that I know when he says the word, I promise, like, I know that it's the truth. And that's such, such a safety and such a value to me.
2: And not to pile on you, Britt, <laughs> but this idea of McDonald's, like it is a oh. form of gaslighting, right? Like you're changing their reality.
1: 100%. And, like, and it reminds McDonald's me, are closed in the afternoons. Like what, a what bullshit is that? <laughs> it, it reminds
2: me like you're messing with that child's reality that someday they have to confront the fact that McDonald's is open all day yeah, everywhere in yeah, the entire country. All the time. <laughs> right. And it reminds me of a Saturday night live skit. There was an old skit they used to do on a regular basis called Jack Handy. And it was deep thoughts by Jack Handy. And it would just be like a oh, yeah, words yeah, on a no, screen yeah. and some male voice <laughs> reading it. And the one day it was, I wanted to take my kid to Disney world. So he, he gets his kid, puts him in a car but then he changes his mind. It's too much work. It's too far away. It's gonna to cost too much. So he drives his kid to a building that's burned down. He says, I'm sorry, but Disney World has been, you know, burned to the ground. And so we just won't be able to do it today, you know? And he takes the kid home, you know. And that was it. That was Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy.
1: Uh, so, I haven't
2: gone that far. Yeah, but you can see, like, if you take something just a little further than what you're taking it, the kind of harm it does that's explicit and maybe recognizing the implicit harm that's being done on the small ones. Okay. Um,
1: There's one comment I just want to add here from, from the audience. It says, Savannah says everyone deserves truth no matter the age, but we do need language to match understanding. And I do love that that we can lead with compassion when we're telling the truth. So if there's some 80 year old, you know, my 80 year old grandpa on his deathbed and he's got dementia you know, do I need to tell them everything that I think is true or not true about death? You know, there's obviously, um, there's a mismatch in where we are that we can still respect. And same thing with children. So I think that happens on both ends of the spectrum, right? And so, you know, I think we can match the level of truth to where people are. And I don't think that that's manipulative or wrong because all of these are just words, which are just symbols, which are different for everybody anyway. The point is the intent. I'm going to tell you as much truth as I feel like is possible in this situation.
2: Yeah, and there's been research. The audience should know, should be made aware of this. There's tons of research that shows that you should not give your kids the full truth. And here's what I mean. If it they've shown it is not healthy to tell your kids uh, directly in literal ways how many bad people are in the world and the kind of harm that other humans do. It's not good to tell your kid that there's eleven red dots within a mile of the home where there's child molesters living, right? Because kids can't discern and weigh. Like statistical analysis yet. Their brains can't convey how safe their world is or how dangerous it is. And so it's the reason why human beings have come up with myths like the boogeyman lives in the closet or underneath your bed is because by presenting evil in a general way that's not specific or tangible, uh, it allows kids to begin to develop concepts around good and bad, but it it keeps certain uh, specific things from them. That actually end up creating a kid with extra anxiety, a kid with uh, mental disorders, um, uh, a kid who is unable to function fully in the world. And so it is inappropriate to be blatantly honest specifically with children.
1: Or even like North Korea, like are there some truths about North Korea that are really, really hard? Like absolutely. And should we talk about these things and be aware of these things? But should I tell my kid every day, you know, should I be watching and listening to true crime in the car every single day and then just giving history lessons about, you know, let's look at what, you know, Joe in North Korea um, is doing today and just always have, you know, is all of that true? Did all of that happen? Sure. But like, yeah, that's, that's not the level of truth that they're capable of handling. And so that's, yeah. that's malicious in some ways.
2: Yeah. So I, I just hear people say, like, I tell my kids, I just am blatantly honest with them. And I'm, and I'm just saying the research says that that's not completely healthy, even though your motive is healthy. Right. Um, the second uh, of the four agreements is don't take anything personal. And uh, he makes mention of the way we react with people when we say, what are, what you are saying is hurting me. Um, he says, uh, what I am saying is not hurting you. And I loved this sentence that kind of like the one you loved earlier, we had to pause and, and listen for a minute. He said, what I'm saying is not hurting you rather quote, you have wounds that I touch with what I said, unquote. Mm. You have wounds that I touch with what I said. And uh, I remember this lesson from Thomas McConkie. He says, like, every time we enter an experience, it's like we've got this bowl, like we've got this bowl of liquid in front of us. That's all of our past experience that's just moving around in the bowl. And every time we come to a new experience, we, we have our bowl and we go like, oh, it's just like all these other experiences. Here's, here's how I've always handled those that protected me. And he says, if you want to try something new, you have to, in your head, dump that bowl out and realize this is a completely brand new moment, and be able to uh, interact with that moment as if it doesn't have any past experience, right? And none of us do that. In um, none of us do that automatically.
0: Yeah.
2: It takes. It's even in a deeply wise person who's meditating and has a real uh, uncanny ability to be present you're going to get multiple times a day this is going to bite you in the rear end where you can't do it um, it is
1: so rare i mean just just the fact just imagine someone having a conversation and then someone saying ooh i'm noticing something coming up in me it's it's not it's not with what you said it's not about you but what you're saying is hitting an old childhood wound that i have and i'm just going to take some time to sit with it i mean that is some net, i mean that is hard to do like you said like you could be meditating for 20 years um, but in that moment, when you're having that rise and all you want to think is you're being a jackass because I'm feeling this way or whatever, um, and your ego is going to give you all the storyline you need about how it's about what that person said and not about the wound that you have, right? It's really, really hard to do in real time. I, yeah. I mean, it's hard for me. And I I struggle with it. And I'm aware of people who can do that. but. Um, it, it's very, I'm, I'm still in a place where I can do that next day. Like if we have the conversation like next morning with my husband, like, Hey, I think I reacted that way because of this in, in real time, no. uh, I'm not quite there. Lizard brain. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not there.
2: (laughs) He says, if you have no fear, you won't be bothered by the words of others that you don't believe In other words, once you end the agreements, if somebody, you know, the kids at school are are calling you fat, for instance, if you just sense like I'm just a human being, which is just this ball of matter and energy that's, you know, just showing up in the world the way I am. And I have all these stories in my head about what that is and what's the right way one should look and what's the wrong way one should look and what's too skinny and what's too fat. And the reality is that if you don't want to believe those words, and again, we're talking near impossible, especially for a kid. But there is the capacity in us that if we don't want to believe the agreements of others, we can, through a lot of work, stop believing those agreements. Um, if you have no fear, you won't be bothered by the words of others that you don't believe. He says, uh, meet people Um, oh, maybe this isn't, is that you? Yeah. As I no, say, that, that doesn't sound familiar to me.
1: <laughs> You're like, what does this mean? Um, for me, my mantra, um, that's similar to don't take it personal, but how I translated that in my brain is that you can't meet people deeper than they've met, than they've met themselves. And so when I show up with people, I'm trying to gauge, um, how deeply have you met yourself? Where can I meet you? Where can I meet you human to human? And if you're, for example, you and I are online quite, quite a bit and we get pushed back online. And the reason that it doesn't, the reason that it's somewhat easy, not always, but somewhat easy when someone says that I'm going to hell is that I understand where you are. I understand that that's what you're going to have to say, that that's what your ego has to say to me in order to protect these beliefs and this identity. And I understand I understand that I, and I do that too. And there's been times in my life where um, I had to really put blinders on and not see things because I had too much identity and belonging attached to these things being true. And so I don't take that, you know, you're going to hell, which honestly on, on TikTok I get almost every day from a Christian, right? Something about I'm going to hell or leading people astray. It's, it's really a daily thing. And it, it, I, I don't even get really a rise from it or take it personal because of that understanding of, um, of I can only meet you where you are and I understand where you are and I understand why you have to do this. And so it's not about me and it's not about what I said and it's not about if I would have said the perfect words, I would have converted you to my message. Um, I don't have to, it's not about me at all. That's about you and where you're at and I don't need to take those words at all. And for the most part, I feel like that I can do that. Um, it's a little bit harder, you know, when it's a spouse because you your shadow self, all of that's going to show up in your relationship. And you really have to do this practice of wearing the ego-like clothing. Like we we do have to kind of walk into the world and you put on the clothing of I'm Bill Real and this is what I do and these are the words and these are the people. And, you know, we, we put on an ego um, so that we can participate in the world, but you can actually, you know, take, take it off at any time or not be clinging to it. And that's when, again, you get more freedom in your life when you're not um, kind of clinging to whatever your ego needs you to cling to. And when you have the freedom to just kind of take that off. And how Brene Brown says this is, you know, have a soft front and a hard back, meaning, you know, I'm going to I'm going to treat people as as kind and human to human as I can. Um, but if you're coming at me, that's about you. And I just need to kind of have a tough spine about that. And she also has this great phrase of being, of talking about, you know, are you in the arena with me? Because I'll talk to people about, you know, the approach of talking about religion if you're in the re- arena with me, you know, you and me, we're in the re- arena of talking about these things that get a lot of pushback from a lot of different sides. And I'm interested in, in constructive criticism from people who are also in the arena. But if you're at home, just, you know, condemning me on TikTok, she she talks about how we need to be not as interested in those opinions because you're not in the arena. You're not in the arena. And I thought that that was Kind of how Brene Brown says that. But yeah, in general, I, I, um, oh, and I wanted to ask, so you are online, and much more visibly than me. And so how do you deal with um, things that really are personal? I mean, I've seen some really personal attacks that people have given, not just of something that you say, but about who you are and your character online. So how do you deal with that and not take it personal?
2: Well, first off, sometimes I do take it personal.
1: Yeah, hundred um, percent.
2: But when are. I'm not when I'm not taking it personal, there's two things that generally go on. One is that I like me. I like mm. I like who I am today a hundredfold more than I like the guy I was as a mm. all in active believing, fully participating member of a high demand fundamentalist religion. Right. Mm. And so I've learned over the ten years, and really longer than that, but I've learned over the ten years that when i'm living honest and true to myself i don't really feel the burden of what other people's expectations on me are the other thing i do anytime i'm participating in an online conversation where i'm trying to help people wake up to either information or a perspective I recognize that the person who's confronting me with their discomfort that shows up as trying to put me in my place or mm-hmm. to say mean things or to tell me I'm wrong, I'm not really worried about changing their mind. And I'm, and I'm usually pretty okay with their words being allowed to sit there because I'm, what I am worried about are the people you don't see which are the people that are reading the post between me and this other person. So for instance, when I had a conversation with Jim Bennett over seven episodes and I think 14 hours of time, the entire conversation, I am fully aware that my audience is the audience. Mm. And that in my debating Jim, all I'm trying to do is to walk him into territory where his perspective shows up to the audience as less rational than my perspective, because I truly believe that's the case. And so I'm not really concerned about Jim being frustrated or bothered by a line of questioning. My goal is simply to present these 14 hours of material in a way that as many people as possible buy in on the front end. And if you'll notice, I was much more congenial and gave a lot more ground in the beginning, intentional because I needed him to buy into the experiment. And once we got to episode three, I was pretty neutral. By five and six, I was starting to come on really hard. And by seven, I'm laying it all out without any willingness to grant ground back to him if it wasn't reasonable. Mm -hmm. And so I tend to often be aware of who the real audience is and it's never, no offense, but it's never the Dan Hardys of the world. Mm. it's always other folks who are watching that may not even hit a like button or a share button they're just reading the dialogue
1: Mm. yeah so it, it it's almost like this it's almost like this way that I'm allowing you to show up in your ego and debate me but this realization of we're a part of a bigger conversation here and that every word that we say and all the conversations that we have we're so interconnected that we're People are watching, and we're shit. You know, we're shifting in these conversations, and and it's happening all the time. So even if you feel like you're not getting anywhere because you know someone's ego is just really not you know letting them go there with you, you can still um, you can still engage in these places, and even find you know fruitful things that come out of these conversations because we're all in conversation all the time with each other
2: and no one conversation generally again there are exceptions but no one conversation moves the needle for somebody yeah it generally mm-hmm. is a it's generally 10,000 conversations yeah and it really is the conglomerate of all of it
1: mm-hmm. and
2: and so to to put so much weight into like oh this conversation has to be perfect i mm-hmm. have to i have to come back and say just the right that's almost never the case. It's
1: I used to do that more. I'm getting better at that. I used to think I used to go back and say, if I would have said this thing for sure, they would have like, okay, I see what you're saying there, you know, but in real time, you know what, especially once you start getting egos involved, it's very difficult for anyone to give it any ground, but you know, it's, like you said, all of these conversations happening all the time are doing these little shifts. And you and I, by being a part of conversations for a decade together, have have both changed a lot just by these little sentence here, an argument there, something sitting and bothering you, up with, you know, for a while. And that's just kind of how things work so we can continue in conversations but not take things personal when someone's really in an ego place.
2: Yeah, I I watched uh, a couple of YouTube videos maybe a month ago. One was on Jim Carrey, and Jim Carrey, if you followed him at all in the last say decade, you'll notice that he really is somewhere on that path of awakening. Um, I still have my hesitation. There's times where I watch what he's doing and I still see ego where he's claiming there isn't any. But in the very beginning of the video I'm I'm mentioning, I'll try to find it and put it in the source notes, but. Uh, somebody, somebody from Hollywood in an interview capacity says something like, Hey, Jim, in your recent role in this movie, you know, we have to imagine that this was really difficult being that it connected so much with who you are and your own life experience and where you feel, you know, shame or judgment. And Jim's answer was, nah, like I'm, like, I'm not, I'm not Jim, I'm, I'm not Jim Carrey anymore. In fact, Jim Carrey never existed. Mm-hmm. And it's a really deep answer because Jim Carrey never existed. There's just this expression of humanity and that expression of humanity became domesticated. And in order to receive acceptance and love, he had to be funny in extreme ways. Mm -hmm. And he had figured out, you know, somewhere in the middle of his life, he had figured out this was a dead end. Yeah. And, and so he was, he was on a path to something else that was healthier And then I watched a video of Chris Farley, who is the same sort of genius level. But rather than having the wake up moment continues to push into trying to be accepted and loved at the expense of escalating the humor escalating the egregiousness of of the humor, to the point where in a state of depression and inability to access that love and acceptance, he ends up overdosing on drugs, right? Yeah. And you can see these two comedic geniuses whose lives show up in very different ways because one figured out like all of this is just a game. It's all a dream. Mm-hmm. And the other one was so hell bent on Which is really accepted. hard
1: when you're famous. Like we can talk oh, about Uber. this, you and me, like with our like, you know, maybe a couple thousand people that care about what we're saying. But like when it's the whole world, ooh, that is really hard. Like that's really, yeah. really hard to get into that freedom space. but. I had the same thought with Jim Carrey when he sent me some of these clips of like, if you're paying attention to what he's saying, he's talking like somebody who's, who's gone through something because even at award shows and he'll show up and someone will ask him a question like, isn't this red carpet so great. And he'll say something like, well, all of this is an illusion and it was either sitting at home in nihilism or coming here. And this is a pretty fun illusion. And he'll say just like, and, and, the people who are interviewing him have no idea. They just think he's They're being clueless. silly. They think he's crazy. But if you're paying attention, you're like, hmm, what you been doing over there, Jim Carrey? You, you know? And if, yeah, if you listen to him, he talks like someone who's really kind of had to find ways to become free, even in the traps of um, fame and money, which is really difficult. Really difficult.
2: Yeah. Um, it says here, going back to this, don't take anything personal. he says, When you are happy with your living within your agreements, you are happy all the time. In that state of bliss, you are making love all the time. Now, I love that, that in that state of bliss of living within your agreements, you are making love all the time. And I can, again, I'm not a perfect individual. I've got my own flaws and shadows every day. I'm making mistakes that my better self is not proud of. When I am present and aware and living within my agreements, I feel like I'm making love all the time. Like it's a beautiful place to be in. You're really happy and content. And there isn't anything about you that's out of alignment. It feels really good.
1: It feels really good. It's like it's the best place about being for me, like on the other side of nihilism, because once you, get into that. Everything's an illusion space. It can, it can get a little bit dark, but when you start to really say, okay, if, if everything is, um, if everything is kind of transitory and everything is illusory, then what do I want to do with this life? And when you start asking that question, you start moving that needle of how can I, with my right speech, um, with not, you know, really caring about what people think of me. What is my authentic life life look like? How do I want to spend my time on earth? And when you start creating that, that has been just the greatest surprise on the other side of nihilism is that it it feels really good, even in the face of knowing that I'm going to die, even in the face of, you know, the sun blowing up in the earth, you know, going away and all of this being forgotten in the universe. Like even in the face of that, I can really be happy with, how my life's going right now. And that's been a really big shift that I've I've really enjoyed that I really couldn't see when I was still kind of just starting to have these conversations because it just felt like everything was falling apart, you know, before you start to get some momentum going on that authentic life, which is really why I, I try to help people with this in their own lives when I do coaching is because it's it's like you said, it, it really can be a state of bliss and it's not dependent on anything. It's not dependent on hiding myself from the fact that I'm going to die or that my kids could die at any time or any of that. It's 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 a state of bliss with eyes wide open, which is really, really beautiful.
2: Yeah. I, I imagine that planet earth, in terms of its size in comparison with the universe would be sort of like a single cell in our body compared with our whole body. And that if you were to go to the other side of the universe, wherever we're at, whatever side we're on, wherever I'm sure we're not smack dab in the middle, go to the far end in your head and then look back and realize that whatever we're fighting about, you know, you and me have this conversation right here. It doesn't mean anything. It's meaningless. It, it's as if uh, it's as if a, a few cells in your body wanted to debate, you know, whether Trump or Biden's more right, <laughs> and the rest of your body doesn't care. Like it doesn't even know it, it doesn't even know what's going on. The rest of the universe could care less what we human beings are doing on this planet. Even if we destroy ourselves and and take everybody with us, the rest of the universe could care less. This rock will not. What we do on this rock is almost essentially not going to impact anything off of it. Um, And so, as he gets ready to go into this idea of don't make assumptions, he says, Everywhere you go, people are lying to you. You are lying to yourself, and they are lying to themselves. But he juxtaposes that truth, and that's true. He juxtaposes that truth against the third agreement, which is don't make assumptions. And when you know everybody's lying, It's not easy to not make
1: assumptions,
2: (laughs) right? You kind of know when people are bullshitting you. But what he suggests, not that you put your life at risk at the expense of it, but that you start trusting people with what they say. Like, Like your job is to be honest with me and I'm going to operate on what you tell me. And I'm not going to tell stories about what's going on inside of you. I'm going to trust that you're going to, uh, as best as you can, represent your thoughts and feelings and behaviors with your words in a way that are aligned with what you actually are thinking, feeling, and doing. And that when you stop making assumptions, you take people at their word, you essentially place trust that if like you, it's, it's up to you to tell me, what's really going on. All I can do is take you at your word that something magical happens when you, when you make that new agreement.
1: Mm. Yeah. And really for me, it goes back to all the conversations that we have had that we'll probably continue to have on, on challenging biases, because, you know, we did an episode of, I think 15 biases. And I think there was like 150 that have been cataloged and still more being cataloged all the time. And I'm still coming up on biases that I have. And, and so it's really about if you really, to me, all of this is like freedom, right? All of this is increased freedom, living according to your word, more freedom, um, not taking anything personal, much more freedom to create your authentic life. And then not making assumptions. It's again, this sense of you are so biased and you have all these thought patterns and we have this natural ability to look at someone base it on all of our past experiences, maybe with people like that, and come up with assumptions and stories about them. And the reality is that the biases are limiting how much we're able to see. And so if we actually challenge our biases and go into situations thinking, how can I be wrong? Or what can I learn? Or what does this person have to offer me that they know that I don't? Because truly every person has something that you can learn from, right? And so if you go into that, really being aware of biases and how can I challenge them, you'll actually be able to see more, right? You'll be able to see more than you're able to see if you're just not aware of how you're making assumptions and how you're putting things in boxes and how you're really just being driven by all of our biases, which are just little shortcuts to get us to make decisions faster in our brains. But They don't allow for the complexity of the real world. And so, again, you know, more freedom in your words, more freedom in in your authentic life by not taking anything personal and more wisdom and and freedom in what you're able to see and how much truth you're able to handle and how big of a picture that you can see and how much complexity you're able to hold if you go into situations challenging your biases and challenging your assumptions rather than going in thinking, Oh, this person is wearing a Trump hat, so they're stupid. And I'm going to just kind of bulldoze them with whatever I think is right on this totally different scenario that doesn't even have to do with politics. Right. And that is actually going to limit your ability to see more clearly. So you'll have more freedom to see by challenging your assumptions is kind of Mm. how, where I went with that
2: and and in this section he talks about white magic and black magic and black magic is using just like that mother with the daughter saying you have an ugly voice shut up that was black magic mm-hmm. simply saying see again on on a so there's there's a a major portion of our population of this world who believe that when things like this are being talked about, we're talking about real supernatural magic, like somebody waves a finger and some spell in the air happens. But when you get into the wisdom traditions, when they speak of putting on spells or using black magic or white magic, they're talking about the power that words and behavior have to impact the humanity of another human being. So when the mom tells the girl, you have an ugly voice, shut up. She does do a spell. She Mm -hmm. does do black magic. She does say a sentence, which is just sounds coming out of the mouth.
1: That affects the world.
2: That affects the world. And so a spell has been said, a spell has been put on. Mm -hmm. And we can use our words and our behaviors to do black magic. We can, in effect, cause real harm inside the inner being of another human being So that going forward, they will operate with more fear, more shame, more anxiety, more of a negative experience, trying to just be okay in their world. And he says that we can use our words instead to do white magic. And in the same way that instead of tearing people down with our words or our behaviors, we can build people up and it only takes this tiny little twist of doing it different and i've seen this play out a thousand times to where i really do deeply believe in my core that if you are present and aware and try to keep say these four agreements or the eightfold path that you can you can show up every day really causing positive ripples in the world or you can do the opposite, continue to be stuck in ego, continue to be stuck in past and future, and you can continue to do black magic too.
1: Yeah, and this is where I sometimes see, even in myself, um, atheists really kind of stopping things in its tracks, because what an atheist will sometimes say is that they'll look at the healing that kind of Uh, shaman type places tend to do or the what the white magic that you're talking about and they'll just say oh this is the placebo effect and and um he's really honest the author like yeah we call this the placebo effect but then for a lot of people that just ends the conversation like oh if it's not ultimately in some supernatural way real magic then um you know just just don't touch it it's stupid right but the the deeper question, the more philosophical question is, why does the placebo effect work? Why does it work at all? Why do we have the power in our brains that if we think that this pill is going to do something, it actually does something? Because the science is showing that the placebo effect, that placebo pill actually did something. It didn't react in the body just like a sugar pill. It reacted in the body like something more. So why does that happen? Right. And so it's, you know, there's this kind of deeper wisdom tradition of of using words and using these traditions and using rituals and using these um, practices that help you develop wholeness for this kind of whole body feeling for this kind of whole body healing. And I'm becoming more and more interested in it, whereas I think in my earlier years of of atheism or at least just kind of dealing with religious trauma, I would have been maybe too. Um, skeptical. But I'm, I'm, I'm opening up a little bit more into this space. Um, Although I'll keep my skepticism with me when people make truth claims about faith healing. But there is something going on with our ability to even just gathering some friends and having them touch your body, and hoping that you'll do better. People will say that's the placebo effect, but why is it working? Right. And so how can we actually use these tools that actually do help people and get the mind and body kind of interconnected for healing um, in a way that we don't have to betray, you know, things we now know about science. And so that that world is very interesting to me and I'm learning more about it, but I'm still I feel like a baby and kind of understanding this world
2: and isn't telling the kid your voice is horrible. Shut up. Isn't that also the placebo effect?
1: Yeah. Like your like, words
2: can't really hurt someone.
1: Yeah. And, and they, they will sing worse than they used to because you said that, right? Because yeah. you'll kind of like fill in that self, you know, that self-fulfilling prophecy. So let me ask you, I have, I have, um, I have two questions for you. I have people who go to Sedona and go and meet a shaman and they come back And they'll say that they've had experiences where the shaman will know things that there's no way that they could know, right? They'll walk into these places, these kind of Sedona spiritual retreats, and they have shamans and, and, you know, the shaman will just look at my friend and just said, you know, you need to really let go of patriarchy. It's really limiting your, your spiritual growth, you know, just on a first meeting. And I keep hearing experiences of people with shaman, and I'm not quite sure You know, with some of the things that we've talked about, I feel like, okay, I I understand the science. I feel like I understand what's going on. I can separate what what could be real or maybe going on from maybe the things that are attached to it that are maybe more baggage or supernatural. But when it comes to shaman, how do you kind of start to separate the two? Where do you feel about the magic of the shamans?
2: I recently sat down in a lunch with two women and these women were sharing um, their experiences sitting down and having some sort of seance. They both separately. This one went over here to see this psychic, and this person went to see this medium. And uh, both these women shared the story that if – and these are trustworthy women. Mm -hmm. um, They shared a story that if you believe their words about their experience, the – The ability to write it off as the psychic or medium is manipulating the situation, they're speaking in generality. Like, none of that works. These experiences were so profound that the skeptic and me had to really sit with, like, what does that mean? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And I don't I don't have a good answer.
1: Yeah, I don't need my hunch. (laughs)
2: All right, so the logical me doesn't believe it and thinks there's another explanation. And somewhere inside of me is also a part, there's also a part of me that thinks that there is a connective echo of energy that runs throughout this entire universe, that we are all the universe expressing itself as, for instance, us humans for a little while, that there really is something about this universe really is on a large scale, like this giant human body. And just like with humans, we don't recognize it, but our various organ systems have their own consciousness. And there's a lot of communication in between systems. And we don't know that. The science says it's there, but we don't know that. We don't intuitively get it. And, And yet it's real. And maybe we don't intuitively understand why, say, for instance, identical twins who are not together seem to have very connecting feelings and experiences and moments where something happens, right? That maybe there's something about this universe that we're all literally part of that is connected to itself. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And I'm willing with a ton of skepticism to let that sit at the table with my skepticism. Mm
1: -hmm. And,
2: and let's just see what happens
1: yeah and i'm i'm more willing to go with you on that post kind of psychedelics than before because when i do psychedelic guiding with people really you know i'm taking a a smaller dose and i'm really doing it to tap into my intuition i'm kind of helping to turn my own ego off so that i can tap into my intuition intuition and what i whatever i feel like i should do i essentially just let myself do so if i'm sitting with someone And it's really interesting that, you know, usually I wouldn't really care about how someone's breathing, but our subconscious is taking in all of this information. And it's really interesting when you do guiding with someone is that I'm just watching someone's body and I'll just feel like I really need to put a hand on their shoulder. And maybe it's because my subconscious is really tuned in and I've watched that their breathing has changed. And maybe I haven't even noticed that I've noticed this. I've just, I feel like I should let this person know that I'm there. And after the trip, they'll tell me, you know what, the moment that you did that, it was the moment when I felt, like, I'm, gonna, I'm so alone and I'm going to die. And then I felt your hand and I knew that it was okay. Now, I didn't know why I did that. I just essentially follow my intuitions when I'm in that space. And I'm getting better at doing that by, by doing that with people. Um, but it, it, it does make me think that for this shaman type person, is there someone who can get so into that space that they're picking up on all this kind of subconscious information that we're not even aware of that enables them to, really deeply connect with people without um you know without you know i i usually have to take a smaller dose to get there and they're doing maybe they've developed that skill into such a capacity that they're just able to go there with people and really deeply connect with them yeah. i don't know like you it's on the table for me but i'm going to be like very very skeptical mm-hmm. before i like you know make any truth claims about it but um, I do like this concept that I heard from Sam Harris once that that not only is the universe more mysterious than we know, it's also maybe more mysterious than we can even imagine, right? Mm. And so we can imagine all these stories about gods and Lord of the Rings and fairy tales, but the actual universe that we're living in is more mysterious than maybe even we can imagine, Right. And that's still magic, like out there. That's still mysterious to me. And I allow that to be there, even with all of my skepticism. And someone asked Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, how much of the universe do we know? And he said, "Um, we don't know what we don't know. But when we talk about going out into the universe and we count up all the things that we're stumped on and we count up all the things that we feel like we kind of have a good understanding on he said that they've they've actually kind of done this calculation and he said that where we're at right now we're at about four percent we feel like we have about a four percent understanding of of what we're seeing just with our telescopes as far as you know the universe so that there's still a lot of room for there to be a lot of mystery that we don't understand and and shamans is still in that category of a little bit mysterious to me but i would love to go see one sometime
2: yeah super it's to me just super fascinating um because you and i will play kind of in that woo space we both seem to be very serious skeptics as you pointed out with like psychedelics, I've thought new thoughts that weren't anything that I could have grabbed. They they just psychedelics at times have put me into a new thought that wasn't anywhere in my head to begin with. And I've also had the chance to like relive a memory while under psychedelics that like you and I, it's easy to go like, oh yeah, I remember my 10th birthday. Like we pull out this little thing and it's like a story that we get to go like, oh yeah, I remember that but in this moment never has it ever happened before i li- i lived the memory again i was in my bedroom with my wife in a uh, a house that we had lived in uh you know 15 years ago and uh i i could see the paint on the wall and the comforter on the bed and everything i was literally reliving a memory rather than a, being a, an observer to a memory when you pull it out of your head and think about it it's like you're holding it and looking at it you don't really live in it. Does that make sense?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. hundred percent. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. Cause the, the mushroom guide that I go to, I asked her, she has, she, she kind of grows her own product and it's a very strong product. And I asked her one time, you know, how this very strong product you have, you know, how is it so strong? And she said, well, I sing to them. And I was like, it's one of those statements that like before mushrooms I would have been like okay weirdo you know like whatever and then after i'm like oh you you sing words at them and i don't know maybe that does something i you know like i can't you know after mushrooms that's harder for me to to just dismiss just immediately right out of hand right, right. now it's just kind of on the table of mystery
2: take Take two plants, go to the, go to the greenhouse and buy two of the exact same plant. Uh, Just plants that are are easy to take care of. Stick them on opposite sides of your house, but with the same amount of sunlight. And every day walk into one room and talk derogatory towards the plant. And then go in the other side of the house and talk uplifting and, you know, give kind attention and touch and all that kind of stuff. And the other one just feed it and talk, you know, shitty to it. And you'll find that the one plant does better than the other. I did see a
1: study, though, that if it's you, then um, the plants will be different. If they scientifically control the water and touch and everything, it's less so. So it's almost like you speaking that word to this plant and that word to this plant subconsciously also changes your actions to the plants that may affect the growth. yeah. Like you think you are, but subconsciously you're really not. Um, so there may be some of that going on, but um, yeah, it's interesting stuff. The world is certainly more connected than, than I first realized and is more magical and mysterious than I ever thought it was in religion. So this is why I'm, I, I love um, falling in love with the magic of reality. And I, I got on a t- TikTok debate where we talked about, you know, Easter bunny and Santa and, You know, my kids came home with leprechaun traps and I'm like, one, as a mom, like, I don't know if I want to, what am I supposed to do with this leprechaun trap? Like, I don't know. I don't know what you're wanting me to do with this. But then also, like, I just really want them to fall in love with the magic of reality because it's more mysterious than our stories about fantasy even, you know?
2: Yeah the uh the last of the agreements and we're probably running out of time here the last of the agreements is always do your best i've got uh the notes that i have are uh your best is always different this reminded me a lot of the brad wilcox grace practice on the piano i mentioned this to you that when i read the continuous atonement by brad Brad wilcox there was a lot about this always do your best that i was like "Mm." He seems like maybe he read this and he implemented some of this into the book.
1: <laughs> maybe.
2: But your best is always different. Doing your best happens when you, are, when you are present with increased awareness. Enjoy the action rather than the reward. In other words, if you, he, he used the example of work. If you go to work Monday through mm-hmm. Friday, nine to five, and you just are trying to get through it, right? You're treating the present as if it's the past because you're looking forward to the future. So you bust your ass all week at work. Now you have the weekend. You want to have some fun, enjoy it. But before you know it, it's going to be Monday again. He suggests rather than that mentality that you just get up every day, knowing that the world is a beautiful place and just essentially take on your day as if everything is magical, including your work. Um, so he says, enjoy the action rather than the reward. Detach from the reward. He says, uh, you know, you do your best, no regrets. And when you make a mistake, so what you get back up and you try to do your best again, it's practice, he says. Um, And then he says, express who you are by being you express your dream, it's your dream, you get this one life to live. And at some point, it will extinguish. And it might be when you're 20 in a car accident, it might be when you're 50 from a heart attack, it might be when you're 90 in a nursing home. But regardless, you get this one shot where this consciousness gets to be in this universe and gets to experience a life lived and why not get up every day and express your dream, live your dream, be the version of you that your mind and body and heart say to be. And I think other than a few select people who are sociopaths and narcissists and serial killers, I think for everybody else, there is a lot of healthiness and joy to be found in waking up every day and living your dream.
1: Mm, Yeah. So at at the very beginning, I, I don't know, I was like resistant to this idea of always do your best because I feel like it's like on cat posters, like in your classroom since you were five years old and I just didn't have like a natural reaction to it at first, but like, If like, if it would have been one of these other phrases that maybe I just have less baggage with, um, like, I love the idea of detach from the, from the reward, because what you and I are doing podcasting, like if we were doing this to become famous or to make a certain amount of money or convert a certain number of people, if there was some outcome we were going for, um, you know, it's, it would just make it absurd, right? Because Um, we do this specifically because we are detached from any reward of doing this. We're doing this specifically because we enjoy this conversation that we're having right now. And so that's the way to do life on, on this side of life is how can I detach from any reward? That's about my ego or about how I appear in the world and really fall in love with the journey, really fall in love with these relationships, really fall in love with your own existence. Right. And that's how you get out of that cycle of, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to put on these masks. Then I hate it so much that I'm going to numb over the weekend and I'm going to drink too much. And that's not being in love with your existence, but Mm -hmm. detaching from rewards, especially ego rewards about I'm going to do this. So I'm seen in this way or make this amount of money um, actually helps you to fall in love with existence, fall in love with the journey because really what we have is the present moment and rewards are illusory at best. And so, you know, if you're a hiker, you can't just be thinking about that five minute moment that you have on the summit, you really have to fall in love with the journey of of hiking and the journey, you know, all the prep up to it and all and the people and the Sunday hikes and you have to fall in love with that whole process or else it's really just five minutes on the top of a mountain. And that is very, you know, that's very, if you're only living your life for those couple of five minutes or that week that you have on vacation and the rest of your life is just putting on masks and then numbing, um, that's, that's just no, no way to live life, especially if you want it to really be something meaningful before you die, you know?
2: Totally. Um, any other thoughts here on this one, always do your best?
1: No, that's, I like, I like the detached from the reward. That's, that's the phrase that got me.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's never like feeling shame or frustration at yourself for not doing your best in this moment. You just get up, dust yourself off and you try again. I think it's the, I think what he's speaking to is this conscious awareness of constant improvement, rather than actually doing something perfectly from this point forward, that we all know that's impossible. And he speaks clearly of it being impossible. But just to be motivated to get back on the track and try again. All right, last thing here, he says how to change your agreements, things I wrote down can fight back against the judge and the victim. A real warrior fights back against the ego voice. We can change our personal dream and the dream of the planet, where we are free to love and to be who we really are. Man, that sounds like a beautiful place. And and having experienced that, experiencing that, I would say the majority of the time, um, free to love and to be who we really are. Face our fears. Stop feeding the voices. He says something about initiation of the dead. Uh, he, He speaks of this as developing awareness or taking an inventory of the agreements that you have made that you want to break away from. And then I went on another website and I was looking up this initiation of the dead. And one person wrote initiation of the dead is to take the angel of death as our teacher And learn to live every day as if the angel was only a couple of steps behind us. I believe this is the right way to live because most of the nonsense that I do in a day's time is not what I would be doing if I was really aware. What I would do instead is to love the people in my life. In other words, if you're aware that death is right there, and it really is. Mm -hmm. Like we're lucky we live in an age where most children survive childbirth, where most people live into their 70s or later, where most people have the ability to avoid the natural dangers of survival. And uh, in reality, that illusion prevents us from seeing that death is right there, right around the corner, and being aware that death is real. By the way, the moment I let go of religious belief and I sat with the fact that my finite life would come to an end. My uh, taking my own behavior seriously and my propensity to want to de- grow and develop became exponentially greater.
1: Mm, yeah. Does that make sense? For me, hundred percent. And for me, um, People will ask me sometimes, you know, because we talk about rituals, you know, what ritual do you do? And what I do is um, I have a patio outside my um, bedroom. And so every morning I walk out and I look at this tree that I have on my property. And it's it's this beautiful kind of like mother tree kind of tree. And I really want my ashes to be placed there someday and for my kids to be able to mm. You know, my kids play under it and it's kind of this tree that we sit under and spend a lot of family time Mm. and I want my ashes to be there. And I'll look at this tree and I'll just, you know, this whole ritual takes me 10 seconds every morning because that's all I have as a mom. I simply take a breath. I look at this tree. I know and I make the connection like the angel of death connection that whatever I am is going to be in this tree in not very long, and but I have today. I have this moment to love my people, to take part in these projects that I love doing, even if there's no you know, ultimate meaning or reality to reality. And um, mm. it's such a beautiful focus to my day, but it didn't happen until like you said, I had to let go of some fears. I had to let go of some beliefs. I certainly had to let go of a lot of identity and ego and fear of, um not being able to belong but when you're able to let that go thinking of death is actually a really beautiful way to focus your life on how you want it to be intentional so that death isn't a surprise because that is to me the most painful thing i think that you could go through is to get to your end of the the end of your life having never taken off the mask having never done what you wanted to do and you know if if that's it if that was your one life And you don't get another chance, the feeling of regret that I would have in that moment, I I feel like would be the worst pain, you know, the most painful thing that I could go through. And so I really want to meet that moment daily of like this, you know death is is near and it happens to everyone around me and it's gonna happen to me but i have today and i have these people and i've and it makes me more willing to tell people stop and tell the people that i love them it makes me more um appreciative of things it makes me you know less drug into all the drama and little things that make life frustrating and so to me and so there's a phrase that goes with this memento mori remember that you will die and so i just step outside in the morning i take a breath i look at the tree i say memento mori and then i start my day and that's kind of my morning ritual it's very very quick but i think it's a great one for really focusing what your life want what you want your life to be
2: i really like it he you know, you mentioned before when we were talking about Elaine de Baton, the rituals that point us out into the universe. You know, and here you have one that points you towards nature and and story in your own life, as well as just how nature works. Um, at, when he gets to the end, <coughs> excuse me, when he gets to the end, he talks about how this message of the four agreements. Is really sort of the message of Christ in the New Testament,
1: mm-hmm. and it reminds
2: me. And I, you know, I think along these lines all the time. But if you take the Christianity out of Christ and throw it off to the side,
1: yeah, <laughs> what
2: you end up with is this Eastern wisdom teacher who's asking us to lose ourselves to find ourselves. There's death and resurrection. There is uh, the the encouragement to sit still in moments and to show up more present and aware. And I'm I'm not. I'm not uh, exactly sure that he's wrong. I think that, on some level, that base grounded level of whoever Joshua Bar Yosef was, it was an Eastern kind of wisdom teacher who was really calling for people to do something that was that would appear extremely similar to buddhism or the four agreements or the eightfold path
1: yeah there's definitely a pushing on boundaries there's a call to love outside of tribalism um there's kind of an anti-materialism to it there's yeah there's a lot of these elements that are there of like wake up you know you're stuck in these structures and these laws and these rules and and there's something much deeper and there's transformation that is much deeper that is available to you, but you, you've got to kind of break through these, these walls that are really a trap.
2: Yeah, totally. Um, I don't have anything else. That's all the ground I had and we've gone our good two hours here. Any other thoughts from you?
1: That's it for me, but I, I really enjoy these conversations and I really enjoy when you Put together an episode because I feel like if I were to embarrass you for a second, I feel like when I first met you, you were podcasting and you were teaching when you were podcasting. And so I feel like I met you like when you were kind of this seed of what you are now where it when you when we do episodes like this, I get to hear you talk like a wisdom teacher. And I you had a seed of that when I first met you, but I feel like it's so much more than. It, you know, in the more than a decade that we've known each other. And so it's just really beautiful to just, I love these where I, I really do learn from you. And I've learned from um, this book that you've recommended and also your comments and all of this. And I just love to hear you talk like a wisdom teacher because you could see the potential of that when I first met you, but it hadn't become really actualized. It's just really beautiful. And, and as always, I, you know, the two hours goes fast for me because I just enjoy this.
2: I, I feel like one of these days I should take two edibles before I come on,
1: <laughs>
2: and and I I wonder, I wonder if you would notice more of that or less of that because I have a yeah. hunch about which one it is, and I don't maybe know it'll if that's me. yeah maybe one of these days when we pick a topic kind of like this one where I really know the ground pretty well yeah that maybe I I could let you know ahead of time I'm going to do that and we'll see if it yeah, goes well.
1: It's really beautiful stuff, man. And I, and I enjoy it and I'm growing a lot from it. So I, well, I really
2: got you. I mean, you, you always talk as though you and I are on the same page that I see value in religion and I want to pick out the good things from it. And I'm going to tell you that's not true until I met you. <laughs> you I only believe that because you've shown me the truth of it. Um, If it were up to me prior to you and I starting on this podcast, I would have said if I could snap my fingers and all of religion would be gone, I would have snapped them immediately. Mm -hmm. And you have helped me to understand that that technology and tools that have been necessary for hundreds of thousands of years for the human species to survive – that we ought not in just a generation or two decide they're worthless yeah. and throw them out.
1: Now, to be fair, we may, if if we had that red button, we may still choose to push that red button, especially <laughs> depending on the day. But at least we'd be hesitant about it because yeah. maybe we're a little bit more wise about it. I'd want to talk this. it out. <laughs> yeah, we'd at least <laughs> talk it out first. Whereas before we'd have just done it because like, F all of this, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, And next week. So I loved this. And then next week, I'm super excited. We have Lisa Miller, the author of um, An Awakened Brain. It's going to be a huge episode for us. She's um, an amazing writer and she's got all of the science of spirituality in the brain. And she is the expert on spirituality in the brain. And so we're going to pick her brain next week. So definitely tune in to next week's episode um, with Lisa Miller. It's going to be a really good one.
2: Britt has done a beautiful job securing really high-end uh, primo guests. I really
1: just cold call or cold email these people, and just some of them are just very gracious and, yeah. and uh, will respond. And I really appreciate it. So
2: I'm in the works of trying to get a Stephen Hassan. Uh, for oh, mind yeah. control. And so I I'm saw him on of, some
1: other stuff and I got I yeah. got jealous too. I was like, hmm.
2: That, that other stuff pointed him here. our direction and I've already emailed him. He's he's likely will do it. So we'll see what happens. Yeah,
1: awesome. All cool. right, we'll keep, Tune in we'll next keep week. having those conversations.
2: Lisa Miller and folks, please, if you're liking this stuff, the, the best way you can show us that you like this stuff is to go onto almostawaken.org and donate five bucks a month. Help us to have enough funds coming in that we can support Brit in spending her time and energy here. And uh, that's the greatest way you can say thank you. For those who do support the program, super thanks to you. For folks who tuned in, uh, deeply appreciative of all of you. Um, uh, If you want to support the podcast, almostawaken.org. And we're just going to keep having these conversations. And uh, hopefully you folks are benefiting in ways that show up in your real life.
1: For as long as it's helpful for people. And if, you know, if it comes to a day that's not helpful for people, then we'll move on to other projects. But yeah, yeah, please let us know that these conversations are helpful for you so that we can really put and focus our time and energy on getting the best guests and and best content we have for you guys.
2: Yep. Subscribe, like us, share us where you can. Give us a five-star review on Apple. Otherwise, folks, have a great week. And uh, Britt, thanks so much.
1: Yeah. See you next week, everyone. Thanks.
0: This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit spirituality.com to meet with Certified Spiritual Director, Brittany Hartman.